This podcast episode is the recording of a seminar presented by Troy Anderson, Public Defender, on cross-examination. Troy was admitted as a solicitor in 1998 and came to the bar in 2007. He specialises in criminal law and he has a particular interest in Commonwealth criminal law, fraud, terrorism and narcotics offences. He is the author of the text Commonwealth Criminal Law and the LexisNexis Service, the ABC of Evidence, and he is a summer lecturer in criminal law at the University of New England. Troy joined the Public Defenders Chambers in May 2017. He is a member of the New South Wales Bar Association and the Australian and New Zealand Association of Psychology and the Law. I hope you enjoy this episode. Um, look, can I just make two caveats before I start this presentation? Number one, Talks on cross-examination always have an implicit sort of assumption that the person giving the talk must be very, very good at giving, you know, doing cross-examination. I don't hold myself out to be the best person by any means, um, but it's something I do quite a bit. So hopefully I've got something you can learn from. The second thing is, for those of you who have done this quite a bit, there'll be lots of obvious points. I apologise for that. Um, but look, you're still getting an hour's worth of CLE, if nothing else, and a cake, so you, you can't complain. The title, Cross-Examination, The Art of Asking Simple Questions in the Right Order, is something that I remember learning when I did the bar course in 2007. That really sums it up. It is simple questions, ask in the right order. And if you do it well, you can get the right answers as well. What's the purpose of cross-examination? Well, there are two obvious things, really, when you drill down into what it's all about. The first, to test the veracity and the accuracy of the witness's evidence in chief, and secondly, to obtain from that witness any relevant facts which may be favourable to your client's case. Now, this is not a talk where I'm going to be going into lots of case law. It, it's, if anything, it's just an overview. Um, but those very simple principles should guide you when you're thinking about cross-examining any witness. Now, who's heard of Irving Younger? You probably all have. Does that name ring a bell? Yes. He's very famous. He died in 1988, but I remember learning these 10 rules when I did College of Law 20-odd years ago, and they are still the basic 10 commandments. And what I'm going to be telling you this afternoon is nothing radical. It's nothing beyond, really, what he has told us since the 1970s when he uh, famously prepared these 10 commandments. Be brief. Use plain words. Ask only leading questions. Be prepared. Listen carefully, don't argue with witnesses, avoid repetition, limit witnesses' explanations, limit questioning, and save the main point for your closing address. If you remember nothing from this afternoon, those 10 points should guide you. All of these apply in different ways in different cross-examinations. I'm not sure I entirely agree with the last one, save your main point for your closing address. Sometimes you do want to hit the witness with the, the gotcha moment. You're not always in a position to do that, but if you are, tactically it may be something that you want to consider doing. But certainly all of the others are matters that all of us should bear in mind. Now, the first point, and I'll spend a few slides on this, always have a strategy. I can't emphasise this enough. You need to understand your case. I mean, I'm saying something which sounds so self-evident, 
that having seen a lot of my colleagues cross-examine people, you do wonder whether there is an overarching strategy that they have in mind. If you have a strategy for your case, if you know what it is, and I start from the reverse, I start with my closing address in many ways, when I first start thinking about the case, what is the ultimate submission that I want to make to the jury? Once you know that answer, everything else falls into place. Everything else falls into place in terms of what you're objecting to, what evidence is important for you, whether it's worth having an argument about certain documents being admitted, for example, whatever it may be, have a strategy, and then once you've got that, your cross-examination will become so much easier. The alternative heading to this is, why am I asking this question? Now again, it sounds really obvious, but so many people, um, and no doubt I've done it as well, you start cross-examining a witness almost because you feel, well, they're there, I should ask them a few questions. Don't do it. Why am I asking this question? It should be the question you ask yourself before you ever stand up and ask a question. All of the other slides that we're going to go through relate back to this fundamental issue of the strategy and why am I asking this question. When considering cross-examination, I start with the question, what is this submission I ultimately want to make to the jury, as I say? Everything will fall into place when you have an answer to that. Now, I know uh, some people, far more experienced than me at the bar, often like to see how the evidence comes out of a witness. And that's obviously very important. But they leave their developing of the strategy to the court process itself. They don't want to be fixed in their mind of the particular strategy because the evidence from the witnesses may not come out that way. And I can understand that. For me, I'm far more anxious than that. I like to have things worked out before and then adjust the, uh, as the matter goes on. Uh, and as I say, once you know that, once you have your strategy in place, you know what to look for in the evidence. And by that I mean, if for example it's a sexual assault case and the issue is consent, as it often is, you don't need to worry yourself in your cross-examination about whether the parties knew each other. Some things are going to be obvious and you don't need to challenge them. But if it is, well, did this event actually occur, if it's a historical sexual assault matter, well, then obviously that would change what your focus is. Did they know each other? Was there a point of contact? Does the story make sense? So once you've got your strategy, things become that much easier. Having the strategy is critical because it informs who you require for cross-examination. As I say, if you don't care about certain witnesses, there's no point having them along if they're not part of your strategy. What you will ask the witness, well, that's obvious. Once you've got your strategy, you know well, do I need to elicit information about certain things? Who do I elicit it from? This obviously requires preparation. You must not only read the brief and the witness statements beforehand, but the entire brief. Now, again, that sounds really obvious, and to experienced litigators, it is. But quite often, it doesn't happen. And you see that in court when people begin their cross-examination of certain witnesses, and the Crown will say, well, look, that's going to be led by another witness. We, I don't know why the council's asking that question to this witness. You need to know it all. Now, in a complex case, cross-examining a single witness without knowing what is in the rest of the brief is not only dangerous, but it means you miss the opportunity of sometimes obtaining small evidence or concessions 
which can affect the entire case. And what do I mean by that? Well, every case, in my experience, always has one or two witnesses that are very important. And there's a lot of others who may be subsidiary witnesses, but they still need to come along to give background information. You need to know it all, how it fits together, so that when you cross-examine each of those people, you can get out relevant small bits of evidence from each of them. Whether it's something that you ultimately want to put in your submissions, or whether it's something that you simply want to highlight because of an inconsistency between Crown witnesses. You need to read it all and you can't rely on just sitting at the bar table and listening to what someone's saying in their evidence in chief. Because in their evidence in chief they may say stuff which is fantastic for the Crown case. But if you know the brief well, you'll be able to think to yourself, if it's a live issue, well hang on, I know another witness says the exact opposite to that. And you want to be in a position where you can put that to that witness in cross-examination. Now this is just my own idiosyncrasies and you might be different in the way you prepare things but I read the brief twice um, and someone would say it's much more than that. I always read everything first just to sort of get a flavour for what it's all about. I do that before I conference with the client in order to see whether or not they actually want to plead or whether they want to have a um, negotiate some sort of better deal or what they want to do but I feel you need to know everything before you conference with them because you want to look like you're on top of things. The second time I read the brief would be probably a couple of weeks out from the trial and that's when I start working out, well, who do I need? What, what is the real strategy in this case? Again, that might be just me being a little bit paranoid, but so much of my legal career is based on the fear of being publicly humiliated that I feel the more times I read it, the better. And things do change, you know, during a, the course of a trial, it's a dynamic situation. You always need to be up to date with what's going on and reread things. As I say, the second time I read it is to understand the importance of individual pieces of evidence in preparation for the trial. So that's something I would certainly suggest. Don't assume anything is unimportant. You never know what you can work with, which on their face may be just detail. I'll give you a very good example of that. I had a recent sexual assault matter where there were hundreds of pages of Medicare records about this complainant, which had been basically sent to us with a covering letter from the Crown saying, this is just provided by way of disclosure. Didn't come with a statement from anyone. They weren't going to attach any significance to it. One of the interesting issues that the complainant had raised in her evidence, both in her statements and in court, was that as a result of this sexual assault, she was pregnant. Now, none of us knew how this was going to play before the jury, but what the Medicare records revealed was that around the time she was uh, supposedly assaulted, she was having lots of tests done for pregnancy at her local GPs, all of which returned negative answers for being pregnant. So it really flew in the face of what she was saying in her evidence. Now, but for the fact that we went through all that medical material and tried to understand what the codes meant, because nothing is ever you know, black and white, she is not pregnant, uh, you have to understand the codes. That became dynamite when it actually got to court, because when we get to one of the other uh, slides about you know, closing the gates, this complainant had locked herself into, I was definitely pregnant, I remember it, I remember doing this test, I remember this doctor told me I was pregnant. And then when you go to the records and say, well, you know, what do we see here? It's, it's a devastating moment, at least I felt it was, um, and the client was acquitted, so perhaps the jury was as well. So don't assume anything is unimportant. 
uh, as I said, the Medica record example. Issuing subpoenas early in the proceedings which dovetail into your preparation and cross-examination is critical. You can't leave anything to the last minute because if you do, there's always a good chance that you issue that subpoena and whoever you've served it on simply doesn't have time to comply or they say, well, so-and-so who normally deals with the subpoenas, you know, he's away for a while, uh, can we hold it over for next week? If you've got the clock running and a trial starts on Monday, a judge is going to be very unsympathetic to you saying we need another week or whatever you know it doesn't happen, get onto it early. Examination of CCTV, photographs, etc., all has to be done as part of the preparation. And I know I sound like I'm telling you really basic things, but trust me, not everyone does it. And to give you another recent example from my own practice, um, we, did, uh, we had a recent matter, another sexual assault matter. We didn't know there was even CCTV available of the complainant and the accused uh, at a particular time. It was given to us the morning of the trial. Um, we looked at it very quickly and it was again a, a devastating piece of evidence. We didn't even know existed but the Crown handed over as if oh, look, there's nothing on this, you know, don't waste your time. Um, don't take their word for it. You've got to look at it yourself obviously. And again, we saw something in that film that we'd never seen before, never heard of before. The complainant had never mentioned it in her statement. So just don't take the Crown's word for it. There's nothing to look here, folks. Nothing, nothing to see here. Don't believe it. All of that, all of that preparation dovetails into the strategy. And the two things are symbiotic. You've got a strategy in your mind. As you read things, that gets developed and refined as you go. And everything gets refined to a point that when you come to cross-examine the key witnesses or any witness, you know exactly what you want from them. The rule in Brown and Dunn. I'm not going to spend a great deal of time on this, um, as I've got there in the second bullet point. If I can, whoops, if I could use the pointer, I can't. Um, it's a rule of fairness. A witness must not be discredited without having had the chance to comment on or counter the discrediting information. So in cross-examination, one of the things that you always see done to, again, in a sexual assault case, it's, it always stands out is when you put to the complainant a series of propositions like this never happened to you, you weren't really there, uh, you didn't say that, um, or, or any other scenario where there's a victim whose evidence is critical for the Crown case. You've got a Brown and Dunman. Can I make this suggestion though? When you do it, don't end your cross-examination with it. Get it over early and move on to the more interesting areas. Some people, uh, and I'm sure I've done it myself, you know you've got a cover off on it, so you deal with all the exciting things early, and then just before you sit down, you go, all oh, right, well, I've got to do that brown and done stuff, and you go through it. It's really tactically not a very smart thing to do because you leave the jury with this impression, well, not even an impression, it's you leave the jury with the fact of that key witness saying no to every one of your questions. No, I didn't say that. No, I didn't do that. No, I wasn't there, or whatever the case may be. You want to bury that stuff somewhere so that if it ever goes to the CCA with an argument that the witness wasn't properly brown and done, you can go, well, it's there, it's on page 20 and it's lined, blah, blah, blah. But you don't want to leave the jury with the impression of this witness just simply disagreeing with everything you say. So you've got to try and tailor things in such a way so that when you do cross-examine, you leave the witness. The last question really should be a highlight. It's something, at some point you want to make, and that should be the last impression that you leave, not brown and done issues. Number three, 
do I need to ask anything? Don't assume you have to ask questions. And I'm sure all of you have had clients or clients' families who've said, you've got to ask her something. She's such a liar. You know, you just go, look, leave it to me, okay? Um, some witnesses, as you well know, you don't need to ask any questions about things because they either give evidence which is consistent with your case theory or there's no point because you actually want to be able to say to the jury, what so-and-so said was irrelevant. I didn't ask them any questions because what they have to say makes no difference here. You know, you've got to think about it yourself, but don't ever feel pressured to ask questions simply for the sake of it. Put simply, if the answer to the question you are thinking about will not weaken the Crown case or strengthen your case, don't ask it. Don't do it just for show. Uh, as I say, don't feel pressured by the client or even yourself to ask questions. And that, I know, personally, was something I really felt a lot of pressure under when I was first at the bar, because there is this expectation, you're there in front of the jury, the witness has said a whole lot of things. There is a feeling of, well, I've got to be shown that I'm engaged and I'm not just sitting here for the hell of it. But don't do it. The purpose of cross-examination is to present the tribunal of fact with information that you want them to hear. If the Crown has let evidence you want, there is no benefit in simply obtaining the same information again. I'll give you a good example of that. I've done a lot of Commonwealth drug import matters. And one of the stock standard things that the Commonwealth does, as you probably know if you've ever run one, is to go through potentially you know, dozens and dozens of photos of the bag at the airport. Here we are opening the bag. Here we are taking things out of the bag. Here we are unzipping the bag. It's really pointless stuff. I've never yet, in 10 years of running those kind of cases, ever seen anyone, and, and this includes me, be able to come up with any useful cross-examination about that, that, those photos, unless there is an issue about how it was packed. And that does happen. But more often than not, and I did a lot of Crown work, um, people would feel, well, look, we've just spent an hour looking through these photos. I better ask something about it. And the question said is hopeless, because all it does is reinforce what the jury's already seen, which was, there was a hidden lining. No, you couldn't see anything. Yes, it smelled funny. Yes, it was heavy. These are things that the jury already know. Going back and reinforcing it does not help your, your client's case. Uh, some witnesses say things which are uncontroversial, simply background, don't waste time cross-examining someone unless somehow what they're going to say dovetails into your case theory. Don't go back for your hat and coat. Who's heard that expression? Does anyone know that? What does it mean, Michael? Well, if you've already got a response that is positive, you don't need to go further. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it can be a risk if you do. For example, if a witness who could potentially identify your client at the scene of the crime in their evidence in chief has said uh, something like, well, I can't really identify who was there, do not go, do not think to yourself, that was great. I'm going to go back there and really hammer that point home. Don't ask, you never saw the accused at the scene of the crime, did you? Because it opens up the opportunity for the person, the witness, to say, well, I've thought a bit more about it since I was asked that question by that bloke at the other end of the bar table, uh, and look, I might have. Don't do it. If you've got enough, if you've got enough to make that final submission, and again, this is why it's so critical for you to have in your head very fixed 
what the closing submissions are going to be. If you've got enough for those closing submissions, do not go back into the burning building for your hat and coat, okay? Number four, closing the gates. Who's heard of that expression? Yeah. What, what does it mean? You ask all the questions around it so that when you come to the critical question you want to ask, they can't actually say, uh, no, I wasn't there. Yeah. Because they've already told you, yes, I was there and it was on that date. You've fenced them in. That's exactly right. It's an old cliche, but it really must be followed. If you want the witness to give a certain answer, it is very much closing the gate. You're corralling the sheep so that they go down one little funnel rather than wandering around the entire paddock. Uh, it sounds easier than it is to do. A good example of where this is important is when you want to establish a prior inconsistent statement with a witness. It can happen in other scenarios, but this is a fairly classic one. Um, okay, so assume in an aggravated robbery case, the witness says in court that the accused was carrying a knife. While in the statement, the witness simply said that the accused had something shiny. You would obviously want the jury to know about that inconsistency. When you cross-examine the witness about the inconsistency, you want to avoid the witness saying by way of explanation, oh, well, they didn't ask me. The police didn't ask me that question. Or I said it was a knife, but they didn't write that down. You know, ex explaining away the inconsistency. So you need to close the gates to stop that from happening. Now, my standard sort of questions for that kind of thing, and I ask them quite often, and usually in front of, or before any lay witness who may have said something that it was slightly inconsistent or potentially might say something inconsistent. So this is a fairly stock standard thing for me to do, which is to simply run through whether the, you know, to confirm they've given a statement to police, get them to confirm that, get them to confirm it's been reread, get them to say there were no errors, um, they were very patient with you, that can be important because you don't want the jury to, to, you don't want the witness to say, oh, well, I would have said more, but they rushed me. Um, I've never had anyone, oh, whoops, I've never had anyone disagree with that proposition that the police were very, very patient with them. Were you doing your best to tell the truth? Well, of course, everyone's gonna say yes to that one. Were you trying to tell them the whole truth? Yes. You did your best to tell the police everything important that you saw or heard during the incident. Yes, that's a really critical one for obvious reasons. You didn't deliberately leave anything important out. No. After you made your statement, the police asked you to read it through and make sure it was true and accurate. Yes. The police asked you to sign it as truthful and accurate. Yes. Your memory of the incident would have been better when you made your statement the day after the incident than it would be today. Yes, that's a really important one. Um, you never said anything in your statement to police about seeing the accused carrying a knife, did you? And then that's when I hopefully give the answer, oh, no, I didn't. And then you can say, well, that's because you've just made it up, or whatever you want to say. That, oops, did it again. That, to me, is sort of classic closing the gates because it avoids the witness from being able to say, oh, they didn't ask me. Okay, so it's a really simple example. but. It requires you, as the cross-examiner, to think about, well, I want them to give this answer. In order to corral them down to that point, what do I need to do to limit them talking their way out of it? So you've got to have the preparation. Okay, one question at a time, and keep it simple. Sounds straightforward, but you must be conscious of this. And this is something that I um, 
make errors with quite often, and this one here is a mistake I made a few weeks ago, uh, where it was a, a double-barreled question like this. What I want to suggest to you is this, that at all times on this evening and early morning you were very drunk and you wanted to have sex with the accused. Isn't that right? Now, the judge went, Mr Anderson, and my opponent went, oh, what's the question there? Um, and they're absolutely spot on, because what is the question? You know, is it that I'm asking uh, you were very drunk, or is it I'm asking you wanted to have sex with the accused? Clearly they're two different things, and I, you can't put them together. If for no other reason, then if they say yes, well, what are they saying yes to? Are they saying yes to I was very drunk, or yes, I wanted to have sex with the accused? You can't do that. Um, and as I say, I'm very conscious of the fact that I do it from time to time because you get a bit excited, you get the right answers, you think you're on a roll, you try and roll it all up to sort of put the, the real proposition to the person. Um, but if you don't do it properly, it really just kills the cross-examination there because you've got to go back and go, all right, yeah, I'll do it properly. So just be conscious, simple questions, one at a time. Even a simple yes or no is open to interpretation, uh, as with that previous example. Is it yes to both or no to both? It may be obvious to you what you mean, but it is better to do it in stages and avoid looking at the transcript later and wondering, well, at the time, I knew what that answer was. And I'm sure it made sense to everyone in the courtroom but again, if you've got to go after the CCA and it's an issue there, they're not going to know what it was. Oh, it's a bit ambiguous. You want to avoid ambiguity at all cost. Dealing with the expert witness. Having the expert merely... Oops. Uh, my slides are maybe out of order there. Oh no, okay, sorry. I thought I had a different first point. I'll make a different first point before I go into those. The expert witness is obviously there for a reason. They are the expert. You are never going to be able to out-expert the expert. No matter how much reading you do on their subject matter, you are not going to have a PhD in blood analysis or DNA sampling or whatever, whatever the issue may be. Um, it, but it does help if you know the area not because you want to show off, and I've seen people try and show off to the expert to show, well, I know just as much about you and I'll trick you out. It doesn't work because the expert always will know more than you. But what certainly needs to happen is you must do some preparation, if for no other reason than when you read their expert's report, you understand the terminology that's used. It's particularly the case, obviously, in matters where there are medical issues. Obviously, you need to understand the rudimentary aspects of DNA testing um, so you can understand the report. But don't fall into the trap of when you learn the terminology of, as I say, trying to impress the witness with your own skill. You also don't want to leave the jury behind because they don't have the knowledge of the expert and they don't have your preparation either. So you need to make sure that what's happening is stepped through in a way that you understand it but you're not leaving the jury behind or the magistrate behind if it's a matter in the local court. Having the expert merely repeat his or her report twice in chief and once in cross-examination is not competent cross-examination. So if the report has dealt with a whole lot of issues which are very important to the Crown case as you would expect them to be, 
unless there's some mileage for you to go back to certain things that are said, don't do it. Reinforcing the fact that your client's DNA may have been found on the knife is not something you want the jury to hear twice necessarily. They're going to hear it from the Crown and closing submissions. So unless there's some aspect that you think you can get some mileage from, don't touch it. And again, this goes back to one of the early points. Don't feel you have to cross-examine the expert simply because they're there. You must do some preparation concerning the expert's field if only to understand their terminology, but don't try and out-expert the expert, as I say. Using documents in cross-examination is very important because quite often there will be other reports that exist which you might want to take the expert to. So you need to understand the relevant provisions of the Evidence Act concerning documents, and I'll come to the sections in a moment. But I'll give you an example of this issue of cross-examining an expert witness when it comes to documents that are not theirs. I recently had a matter where my client had a, a psychologist report prepared for his sentencing, which is obviously very common. The Crown wanted to cross-examine the psychologist, and it's not something I've seen done very often, but it was a Supreme Court matter. They thought they could get some mileage out of it, and I could see why. It didn't quite go to plan for the Crown, but they laid the groundwork very well. They got out of the, the psychologist, that she being you know, properly qualified, as you expect. She had an interest in terrorism law. She had an interest in people that have been prosecuted for terrorism. And she accepted that there's not a great deal of research studies into people who have been committed um, for trial or sentenced for terrorism offences, either in Australia or elsewhere. The Crown then went through a number of reports from other psychologists that have been published in journals around the world. The upshot of all of which was this, or the conclusion was this. The sample size for people convicted of that kind of offence is so small that anyone preparing a report about their potential for rehabilitation is really clutching at straws because we just don't know enough about the person's mindset. And it was really well done. The Crown did a very good job. She'd done her research really well in terms of finding these great, you know, case or uh, medical articles, or journal articles, and putting to our witness, well, look, you've given a conclusion which is so-and-so has great prospects for rehabilitation, but at the end of the day, you're just guessing. And our expert quite rightly said, well, I'm not, I'm not just guessing, but I do concede that there hasn't been much work in this area. Now, did it make a difference? Well, probably not given the judge's remarks on sentencing, but it could have. So it's a little example of how you might cross-examine a witness. Get other papers that may be around, which may have a different analysis of some of the material that the expert's talking about. Now, I've mentioned there the Evidence Act. Now, there are three areas that are quite important in the Evidence Act. Section 43 deals with cross-examining a person, not just an expert, but any person about prior inconsistent statements. And that talks about the fact that you've got to tell the person where the statement is that you're cross-examining them about. You can't just sort of make it up, obviously. You've got to give them a date, you've got to give them a reference point so that they can understand it. Section 44 deals with previous representations of other witnesses. Again, this isn't something that is just applicable to experts, but it's something that would apply to any witness. So let's say uh, in a case where there's a victim who gives a version of events which is different from another person's version of events in the Crown Brief. 
you can cross-examine them about that inconsistency, but you've got to do so in compliance with Section 44, which is that you can only do it basically if there's a statement in the brief or you understand that there will be some evidence forthcoming about that contradiction. Uh, section 45 deals with the production of documents said to contain prior inconsistent statements. So what that is, that dovetails in with 43. So if you've cross-examined an expert, for example, about their conclusion being inconsistent with the rest of the, the expert community's conclusion, you might be called upon to tender whatever those documents are that you have relied on. And that's just a question of fairness for, um, for the court to see that you weren't just making it up. Now, you should endeavour with the expert witness to put your questions plainly so that even the most obscure technical material can be understood. Always ask the expert to explain things plainly, even if it makes you appear obtuse. But don't be embarrassed about that. Um, this goes back to what I said a moment ago. You don't want to try and show off. You know, that's not your job. Your job is to try and explain these concepts to the jury um, if it assists your client's case. So don't be afraid of asking questions that may be self-evident because you just can't assume that the jury have a level of knowledge about any of these things. Don't make assumptions. Uh, the goal with the expert witness is to have them make favourable concessions, accept that their conclusions are based on a series of assum assumptions, and admit that if the assumptions are wrong, then the conclusions are necessarily wrong, or at least weakened in some way. So what's an example of that? Can anyone think of an example of where you would apply those three principles, cross-examining an expert? Well, how about this? How about a case where there's DNA that is found on a weapon, and that weapon is part of the Crown case, and the allegation is that your client has used that weapon to assault someone? A really fundamental assumption in that expert's report may well be that the reason there's DNA that's connected to your client on that weapon is because the client touched the weapon. It's often what these experts' reports are trying. It may not have come up to that very statement, but that's what they often lead to. If you can get out of the witness, the DNA may be there by way of secondary transfer. I've touched you, you have touched the weapon. My DNA is on the weapon, but I've never touched it. That's the kind of critical evidence that you would want a person to concede as the expert, well, yes, there's a very high chance that the accused touched the weapon, but I can't rule out the possibility that it's there by way of secondary transfer. It's a really, um, it's, a, it's a fairly easy assumption to tease out in the expert evidence, and it's a really assumption, really easy assumption for you to be able to get the jury to understand that if that assumption, that fundamental assumption that the accused touches weapon is not strong, that's critical. Still dealing with the expert witness. Where possible, subpoena the expert's working notes. Now, all crime scene investigators will keep notes as they wander around the crime scene, taking photographs or observing things. The report that you see in the brief is not typed while they're there in situ at the crime scene. Try and get the underlying documents because you never know what you might find. Often you'll find nothing. Often you will find things that are completely consistent with the ultimate report, but you never know your luck. 
you might find things that are a little bit different. Things that may be able to be muddying the water. Uh, wherever possible, have a conference with the Crown's experts, even if it's only 10 minutes of court. Um, it took me a long time to actually, I guess, be brave enough to say to the Crown, I want to speak to your witness beforehand, because I'd always had this sense of, well, A, they'll probably oppose it, and B, they'll probably not stand next to me while I ask them questions, but it hasn't actually happened. Um, I've always had Crowns who've been good enough to say, yeah, look, why don't you give him a call or her a call? Uh, she'll be coming to court half an hour beforehand. I've got a conference with them myself. Why don't we get them to come in earlier, you know, 15 minutes earlier? You can meet them as well. They've always been very accommodating, and it's worth doing it, particularly, Michael, for that reason you mentioned about building the rapport with them. Experts, in my experience, usually pride themselves on being really impartial. You should usually take advantage of this unless the witness's evidence is not contentious or you're planning to call the expert a liar or incompetent. Uh, that makes things a little bit awkward. But uh, I've never had that scenario. I've never had the, uh, uh, I guess, the facilities where I've got my own witness in the background is going to come along and support that kind of allegation. But they are people that pride themselves on being impartial, and they're quite happy to help, in my experience. You need to talk to the expert before to ensure you don't ask a potentially disastrous question. And again, um, with my rule of thumb for everything, which is not to have public humiliation, that's my main motivation for doing it. Um, there may be times you have your own expert, even if it is only better to understand your area of expertise. Um, that's not very well expressed, but what that essentially means is if you've got a particularly complicated area where there's an expert witness and your client has the resources, sometimes you can have your own expert sitting in court with you so that they hear their evidence and they're able to say, oh, that doesn't make sense. You know, they've, they've added two plus two and they've made it 22. Well, it looks right on paper, but it's not quite right. And I have had that not in a, a criminal situation, but uh, doing civil work. And then that witness, um, you can't then call them because they've sat through that evidence. But you have to have a well-resourced client, I suppose. But that witness um, can really help in cross-examining whoever's in the box because they can tell you about inconsistencies, they can tell you about you've really got to ask this because when our person gives evidence, they'll want to talk about that. Um, as I say, it might be a resourcing issue, but if you can do it, fantastic. I'll give you a, a quick example, again, from my own recent practice of where speaking to an expert beforehand was very useful and saved, um, saved me some embarrassment. Um, the expert in a sexual assault matter had gone through the lack of injuries that the complainant had as a result of this uh, assault. She said there was no vaginal bleeding, there was no anal bleeding. Um, and I was going to say, well, I read that and my solicitor read that, we were like, well, that's fantastic. That's completely consistent with our instructions that nothing went on. Um, so I was going to ask, whoops, I was going to put to the witness, the expert witness, that, and that is consistent with no assault occurring. But I did think, well, I should follow my own sort of, you know, advice and speak to the witness beforehand. And I asked her, well, is it consistent with there being no assault? And uh, the answer was, oh, no, not at all. You know, these kind of assaults can happen all the time and it doesn't necessarily cause these injuries you might expect that they would cause, but it doesn't necessarily lead to that for a number of reasons. 
So I would save the embarrassment of asking that question in front of the jury. Um, so I strongly urge you, if you've got any potentially controversial cross-examination of an expert, take the time beforehand to run through it with them, just to see what their answer is going to be. Um, you might not have the luxury of doing this, but I mean, I always do it with my instructing solicitor as well, just in case there's a different answer given in court to what you've been told beforehand. You can theoretically get your client or get your instructing solicitor to give evidence about, well, what was really said. I haven't had to do that, but as a safety um, precaution, I always have someone there. Um, depending on the area of agreement or disagreement between your instructions and the clients, uh, sorry, your instructions and the Crown, you may want to have them prepare a joint statement, which can be tendered as an exhibit. Now, what that means is if you're in a situation where, let's say, it's a psychological report or a psychiatric report looking at someone's potential mental illness, you have your own psych who's prepared the report, the Crown will have their psych who's prepared a report. Depending on what the areas are of agreement or disagreement, you could have a joint report that's tendered to the court that might assist. Uh, it's a possibility, uh, I've only seen it done once, um, but again, if you want to narrow the issues that are in dispute between your client and the Crown, it's a good way of approaching things. Now, last case, did it when you did it? I'm curious, that was a hot tubbing of things. Yeah, well, it was a hot tubbing, and it was an issue in the district court where the, it was actually at the sentencing point where the, uh, I was acting for the Crown at that time, this is a few years ago, and it was a fraud case involving Centrelink fraud. And the offender had basically said, look, at that time in my life, I didn't know what I was doing. I was just taking money left, right and centre. And there was a report from a psychiatrist that gave her a particular diagnosis. I can't remember what it was now. Um, and the Crown, we didn't, under, we didn't really think it was right. We had our own person do it. And we were going to run at the sentencing hearing not a disputed facts hearing about the facts of the case, but whether or not there should be any mitigation for this woman's state of mind at the time of the offending. And beforehand, because so much of the reports agreed with one another about her conduct, about if you had a particular diagnosis, how that could affect your state of mind, what that would make you do, and for cost reasons as well, we didn't want to have two psychiatrists going up to Newcastle to hear this thing or to run this thing. The agreement was, well, why don't they just prepare a joint report? There's one area of dispute. And then we called them, um, and they basically sat next to each other via ADL in Sydney. We were in Newcastle, and they just went through it. And it was actually a really good process. I've seen it done many times in civil matters, but I've never seen it done before in a criminal matter. And the judge really liked it, um, because she could then ask them both questions at the same time as to how it worked. She only had one report to read. So it worked really well. I don't know how it would work with a jury, but certainly at sentencing it worked and worked very smoothly. Um, yeah, as I say, you could, you could cross-examine them over areas of disagreement as well, because there'd always be some area of disagreement you would expect. Comply with the rule in Brown and Dunn when it comes to expert witnesses. It's important to put the contradictory facts upon which you rely, hopefully having had the um, witness agree that a contradictory position may be possible. In other words, going back to that example I gave you a few moments ago about the DNA on the weapon, you want to make sure you put to them not only what you have learnt about DNA transference, 
but you want to put the submission to them really that you want to make to the jury, which is you can't be 100% confident that this DNA is there because the person touched the weapon. Out of fairness, but also because it makes the point. If you are going to challenge the expert, key areas of attack are their qualifications and the weight that the report should be given. Cross-examination as to weight to be given to the expert evidence will usually be directed to one or more of the following areas. Their qualifications or experience. Now, the example I gave you a little while ago about that psychologist that I relied upon in my terrorism sentencing is a very good example. She was properly qualified, fantastic um, qualifications and experience. But in this particular niche area of dealing with terrorism um, offenders, it was very thin. Is it a real field? Well, some people might come along and be experts on something that you've never heard of. An area that um, can be useful to cross-examine is someone who comes along as an ad hoc expert saying, I know about voice identification. I can identify that was the offender's voice in those telephone intercepts. There's a real issue there about whether or not that's a legitimate area of um, expertise. You might want to just test uh, and tease out, well, what do they really know? How can they give that sort of expert evidence? How many phone calls, for example, have they listened to? with the accused. Was the accused speaking English, another language? How does that person put themselves in a position where they can give that evidence uh, in voice ID? But it can obviously occur in other areas. You might want to challenge the correctness of the facts upon which the opinion is based. Don't assume that the expert's been told the correct things by the police, not because the police are trying to be tricky, but there just may be some error. So check what they're basing the opinion on. The correctness and accuracy of the methodology used and its appropriateness to the circumstances is something you might want to be alive to as well. Gaps in any testing or investigations conducted. The degree to which many assumptions were reasonable at the time they were made. Uh, what I mean by that is that at the time the experts were preparing their report, they may not know everything that we now know when the trial comes along. Have things changed? Are the assumptions as valid at trial as they were at the time that the report was prepared? Also consider uh, the correctness of the assumptions, the reasoning process leading to the opinion. In other words, if the expert has made five assumptions about your client's case and they make a conclusion, is it a conclusion that makes sense looking at the assumptions that they've made? Um, if there are multiple expert opinions, uh, have a comparison. There may be bias. Um, you need to tease that out. In other words, cross-examining a witness who's an expert can be a real minefield. But I can't stress enough, don't try and out-expert them. Know what you're doing, know the terminology, but never try and show off because I just don't think it works. Point number nine, only ask questions you know the answer to. Now this cliche, uh, sorry there's a typo there, but it ties in with the philosophy of controlling the witness and the evidence. It's really quite obvious you don't want the witness to say something that is unexpected. It goes back to that question uh, that I asked the expert witness outside of court about the sexual assault. Well, obviously what your report is really saying is that it's inconsistent with there being a sexual assault. She said no. 
you want to ask that in a time and a place where the jury don't hear it or the magistrate doesn't hear it. So don't ask anything unless you know what they're going to say or what they're going to say doesn't make any difference to your case. And if that's the answer, ask yourself why you're asking the question in the first place. You shouldn't need to be in this position. You have the witness's statement, you have other evidence, and you have your instructions. You shouldn't need to go outside of those parameters when it comes to cross-examining a witness. It is possible to conceive of scenarios where you have no choice, but limit them as far as possible. Number 10, I think I'm almost finished. Uh, don't try and make it up as you go, but how much preparation do I do? I do a lot. Some others are probably braver and don't do quite so much. But there have certainly been times where I've heard a witness giving evidence in chief and I've sat there and I've thought, oh, no, I haven't thought of something, something else before. That's a really good uh, thing I should cross-examine about. I have done that um, and I've asked what I believe have been a series of brilliant questions, game-changing questions, um, but more often than not, I don't. It's very rare. There are two problems with waiting for inspiration while you're at the bar table. One, if the evidence is very dense, it's difficult, for me at least, to be able to simultaneously follow the evidence, make a note, and cross-reference it to other statements that may be in the brief. And that does happen when you're sitting there and you think, oh, I'm sure there's another witness who talks about this. What do they say? You need to find it. Well, you can't do that, listen to them, and take a note. So you need to be prepared. Secondly, if you don't know the witness statement well, you may miss the inconsistencies between what's being said in the witness box and what's written down on paper. The importance to the trial, oh, this is, I'll go back a step. Personally, I do things this way. I try and work out who the Crown's calling. I then get them to confirm beforehand who those witnesses are. If there's something I need for my case, which are not, is not going to be covered by those witnesses, I then say, I want witness X, and they'll be brought to court. In terms of actually preparing for the cross-examination, if it's a simple witness, I'll just simply make notes in my notebook. Not questions, but topics. So ask about location, ask about time, how old they were, or whatever. If it's one of the key witnesses, for example, a complainant uh, in a sexual assault matter or a victim in some other matter, then I do type things out. And it will often go for pages, not necessarily questions so much, but certainly topics and certainly sometimes questions where I will have in brackets the answer I expect them to give referable to their statement. So, you know, paragraph 23 of the, you know, uh, the 9th of April 2018 statement. Whether I do one or the other, just the simple notes in the notebook or the more detailed approach, typing it out, will depend on how important that person is to the case. As I say, I might simply write out um, short headings. Um, for most witnesses, I'll usually write out a series of dot points in my notebook for things that I want to cover. But for the longer or more complex witness, I will type out the questions. I never, and I'll say they're rarely, but I don't think I've ever gone through it verbatim. But personally, I found it, or find it quite sort of calming in a way, because cross-examining the key crown witness is very much a high wire act. You only get one shot at it. If you screw it up, you might 
endanger your client's prospects of an acquittal. Um, you may look like an idiot in front of the jury, you may look like an idiot in front of the, the judge or your instructing solicitor um, or uh, anyone else. The first few questions I find always help me settle my own nerves. So if it's typed out for this key witness and I do ask some basic things initially, I find I get into a really good rhythm straight away. But you do have to be prepared to move around. You know, if I might have five or six pages typed out and sometimes a witness will go off on a tangent and you need to be alive to, well, that's actually stuff I wanted to deal with later on. And you've got to make a judgment call. Well, do I deal with it in the sequence that I've prepared or do I wait for it to come up? Or do I deal with it now because it's come up? And that depends on the situation. Oops. The benefit of being organised with a key witness is that it gives me a sense of control, as I say, that the freedom of knowing I can pursue interesting answers without losing track of what I must ask. The utility for me, and again, I stress this is just my approach, and I, I don't say you've all got to do it, but I can use different styles, bold, underline, etc., to show different topics. That's, I find, quite useful because often when you're cross-examining, you don't want to be there reading like this, but you can glance down and you can see in bold, well, the next one is the the knife, for example, and it just helps me see where I'm up to. It allows me, when I'm preparing, to move the order around, and you can't do that when you've got it written out in your, ha in your handwriting in the notebook. I've tried, and it never works very well. Being able to sort of move what was on page five up to page one, or vice versa, I find very, very useful for these key witnesses. It also means it's legible because I've been in situations where you've got some brilliant cross-examination hidden somewhere in your notes, but you just can't read it. And when you're getting to that point where you want to do it, it's very off-putting if you suddenly think, that little note in red has two words. I wonder what it means. You don't want to do that. Um, so I use 14-point aerial. Um, and of course, the other benefit of having it typed out neatly is that when something is said in the witness box which you hadn't thought of, rather than trying to cram the writing in somewhere, you've got it set out on the paper so you can still add to it and it's fairly legible. But again, that's just me being you know, idiosyncratic about it. You don't have to do it, but I find it, it calms my nerves when I'm doing someone big and important. Avoid re-examination. Does anyone have re-examination horror stories they want to share with us? No? Um, this is one of those rules that I adhere to almost always. It's very rare that I would want to re-examine a witness unless I was confident that what they had to say was what I wanted them to say. You should only go back, obviously this is the, the, the premise, it's limited to asking questions to clarify answers in cross-examination. But if you are in the slightly unusual position of having the opportunity to re-examine, unless you are 100% certain of what the witness will say, don't do it. And I have done it. Uh, I can honestly say I did it probably once in my first year at the bar, and it was a disaster, because what I thought the witness was going to say as their answer was not the answer they gave. And it actually reinforced the very unhelpful evidence they gave in chief. So it was before a magistrate, the magistrate heard it not only once from that witness, but then I got it amplified in re-examination. 
it was a disaster. Not, not only because the magistrate heard her twice, but because I did it in re-examination, they thought, well, clearly he's an idiot. Why would you ask that question? So no one was a winner out of that scenario. A recent example, though, of when I did go back in re-examination is that one to do with the psychologist that I told you about before in the terrorism case, where her expertise had been challenged. What, what can you say about the rehabilitation prospects of this person? In the conference beforehand, she had told me that she had probably prepared 10,000 reports in the course of her career, which is an extraordinary number, and had met offenders from a whole range of different walks of life and different offending conduct. So that put me in the fairly unusual situation of being able to, in re-examination, ask her, well, look, you've been challenged about your expertise in providing uh, any expert opinion on rehabilitation. How many times have you given an expert advice on this question? And she said, thankfully, 10,000. That was it. I sat down as quickly as possible, because that's what I had. That's all I had from her that I needed. And she said it. Um, but that scenario comes along fairly rarely. Number 12, I've nearly finished. Um, listen to the answer. Sounds really obvious. It doesn't always happen. Um, I'm sure we've all been at the bar table where you hear someone ask a question and it's then repeated you know, five minutes later. Sometimes it is easy to miss the fact that a witness has given you exactly the answer you need because you're too busy thinking about the next question. And for me, I'm in a, a very good position of having a solicitor next to me who I can say, have I already asked that question? And hopefully they're concentrating and they say, yes, you idiot, move on. Make sure you've listened to the answer because otherwise you might find you're asking questions which undermine a helpful answer that you've already been given. Don't argue with the witness. This is one of Irving Younger's points. Uh, absolutely true. Sometimes witnesses will say, well, what do you think? You know, of course, I'm not lying. You know, why would I? Or some, some answer that's really not very helpful. There's just no point arguing with the witness. You're not going to change their mind, so don't do it. Secondly, particularly in front of a jury, it just looks bad. Like, you don't want to be seen arguing with the judge, let alone the witness in front of a jury. So don't do it. Thirdly, it means you've lost control. And being in control is very important. If you're in there in court in a slanging match with a witness over what was occurring at this particular time, you've already lost control. Just don't do it. Ask leading questions. Uh, that's fairly obvious as well. As a cross-examiner, you're entitled to ask a question in a leading way. That is, questions which suggest the expected answer. Leading questions are disallowed in examination in chief because they suggest the answer. That's basic stuff. Uh, you know that. Be very careful, especially when cross-examining police or experienced witnesses, about asking why they did or did not do something. Given the opportunity, it will most likely result in something unfavourable being said. What's an example of that? Well, let's say you've got a scenario where the police, on your analysis, have not witnessed, have not spoken to a key witness. And as part of your case theory, you want to be able to say to the jury, look. The key witness is X, and you didn't see them. They weren't here. No one spoke about them. That's a really powerful submission. You don't want to undermine that by asking the police officer in charge, well, you never spoke to uh, you know, Miss Smith, did you? Because they may well say, no, we didn't, because she was out of the country at the time, and we've never been able to speak to her because she lives in Uganda. Well, suddenly that really powerful submission of the witness not being there has just been blown out of the water. 
you could still make it, but the jury's going to go, yeah, but he, we know why he's not here. He doesn't live in Australia anymore. So be really careful about that. Just for that question, because that's how your question, your hypothetical question about this was you never spoke to them and it was left at that. But the answer given by the police officer was with an explanation. How would you control that, even though you've asked the, the leading question, effectively is yes or no, that doesn't call for an explanation that the witness is offered in any way? What would your technique be stopping that? Well, I'd probably ask the officer outside beforehand what the, what the answer was. If I hadn't done that, and they gave an answer like, well, they're in Uganda, um, and that has happened in a Commonwealth trial that I've had once. I wasn't the person asking the questions, but the person who was cross-examining followed up with a question along the lines of, well, don't you, the AFP, have an office in Uganda? And the answer was, oh, we don't. We've got one somewhere else. Um, but that's how they followed it up with, well, you know, in other words, if you don't, if you might have a question which could possibly say the police could have done more, like, well, don't you have an office there, or don't they have the internet there, or couldn't you have spoken to so-and-so, I would ask it. But my instinct probably would be to speak to them beforehand to see what the answer would be. But if you, if you ask the question, and you just wanted to be left at, you never spoke to them, and their immediate yes, and that's the, that's the extent of the question you wanted, but then they add on the extra bit. The explanation. How would you prevent that, even though Theoretically, you've asked that appropriate... Look, you can't. You can't. And this is the thing, when you're cross-examining witnesses who are very experienced, like police officers, and to be an OIC, more likely than not, you're a detective, so you've been around for a while, they will take every opportunity they can to give you something that isn't a yes or no question, to make sure they give an answer, which is explaining away what might be poor conduct. So the short answer is you can't stop them. The question would be, well, once they've given that answer, what do you do with it? And then there's a lot of judgments that you've got to make very quickly because you don't know what the answer might be to the next question, which is, well, in that scenario, don't you have an office there? Um, so it's a difficult area, but that's cross-examination. You know. So it comes back to whether you really need the answer. Mm. In your scenario, you didn't really need the answer. No, because it was self-evident. you had, and I guess the other problem is that once you open that door in cross-examination, it's then open for re-examination, yeah. which can be even more catastrophic. So to some extent... That's right. You, you don't need to go there. Yeah, that's right. That's why these sort of things I'm talking about, they all sort of dovetail together in a way. You, know, you can't look at these sort of 14-odd points in isolation because it all goes back to the first point, what's your strategy? And then of course, what's the ultimate submission I want to make? What do I need these witnesses to say? Do I have enough without asking them any questions? Uh, avoid open-ended questions, for example, what do you think of my client? I'll give you a really uh, quick example of that before I finish. Um, this is about five years ago, and I was acting for the Crown in a big, a big fraud case and one of our key witnesses was the secretary of a company whose boss was the person we were prosecuting for fraud. And he had tried to blame all of the fraud on this woman when he gave his record of interview. The, uh, the secretary gave her evidence in chief to me. She was brilliant, said everything we wanted her to say. I sat down relieved after a day or so as evidence in chief. The first question the defense counsel asked was, well, what do you think of my client? Now, I think the answer he wanted was, I don't like him. 
And then he would try and use that perhaps to show, oh, she had an agenda, she came to court, wanted my client to be convicted. Didn't quite work out that way. What do you think of my client? The witness started off, she basically sort of took the arms back and <laughs> smashed the ball out of the park. I hate him. He's ruined my life. He's a liar. He, she went on and on and on until eventually the judge, Judge Bennett, said, I think we've had enough. Um, and sent the jury out and said to my opposing counsel, and it was one of those scenarios where I was just thinking, I'm so glad that's not me. Um, judge Bennett said to this person, I won't name him, well, there's a very valuable lesson there, isn't there? <laughs> and we went to lunch. But it's exactly right. Like, don't ask a question like that. You don't know what they're going to say. You're in control, okay? When you're at the lectern asking the questions, it's your show. Retain control by having a very good idea of what the witness is going to say. Finally, be yourself. You can learn a lot about cross-examination by watching other people who, who are good at it, but don't try and simply copy someone else's style. You need to develop your own style which suits your personality. Practice never makes perfect, but it is the best way to learn. Um, that's it. Any questions? No? Very good. Okay. Well, thank, thank you, you for having much. me. Sure. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you.